Chapter 9 of Romans is where we are today, this new year. We were in this Sunday uh, last year, this very Sunday, we were in Romans 1. So we're back to Romans. And we're taking Romans in sections. Each section is its own series. And so this morning we embark on the next three chapters as we've been making our way through 2018, through Romans in pieces. We've covered the first eight chapters, and now we go through Romans 9 through 11. We're going to spend seven Sundays, including today here. That's not enough time for all that's here, but it will take us up to a a, a nice break at Missions Conference end of February, and then we will take an application series from what we have here in these three chapters in the month of March. Thinking back to Romans 1 uh, a year ago, this very Sunday, we were in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The point in putting it that way is that the gospel is a global message meant to encompass all ethnicities, and it's been that way all along. And this is a, a, a heavily uh, ethnic section of Romans. There's a lot of talk about the Jews and Israel, God's purposes for them, God's history with them, uh, God's future for them. That's Romans 9 through 11. It's a significant part of Paul's argument in Romans. But just thinking about this today, I really just want to give you some orientation. I've, we've, we've purposely read a big chunk of text so you kind of get a flavor of, of everything that's here. These chapters repeat a lot as they go through. So for instance, Chapter 10, verse 12, uh, Paul says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him, meaning there's not a, there's not a two people of God. There's one people of God in both Jewish and Gentile expression as it's played out through history, and God has been faithful to save some from all and is continuing to do that. Gospel proclamation began with a specific people in a specific place in a specific time. Jewish people living in the Jewish state, and then it spread beyond them and their place, but without leaving them behind, without leaving them out. Again, this is a big part of Paul's considerations in Romans, and through these seven Sundays, including today, I want to show you why this matters. The biblical take on people is similar to what a friend of mine in the auto industry once advised me about tires. I consulted him on what kind of to buy, and he said very simply, well, there's Michelins and there's everything else. Biblically considered, there are Jews and there's everyone else. And most, if not all of us this morning, are among the everyone else. Uh, But we're joined at the hip. Whether we know this or not, and Romans 9 through 11 is here so that we know this, We're joined at the hip to the Jewish people and their history uh, and even their state because it is impossible to to fully disentangle people from the political state that governs them. That there is an Israel today. For so long there wasn't. But in 1948, uh, Israel uh, comes back to the the ancestral home, this uh, 70 years now in the modern era of a Jewish state. That itself is, there's no other way to understand that then uh, a partial fulfillment, not a fulfillment in full, but a partial fulfillment of biblical prophecies that foresaw ethnic Jewish people back in the land that God gave their fathers. 
the salvation of everyone who believes, again, thinking back to Romans 1, verse 16, where we were a year ago this Sunday, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, salvation of everyone who believes begins with Jews, moves to Gentiles, but in such a way, by the time we get to Romans 9 through 11, Paul wants to say, oh, by the way, and it's not really by the way, it's more the central theme. Uh, God moves to Gentiles in such a way that Jews aren't left behind. They aren't left out. Now, why is this important? Why should we care? Because what all of this is about, what we're going to see here in Romans 9 through 11, is the faithfulness of God. How and why God keeps his promises, Israel is a kind of exhibit A for this. If Israel, the ethnic old covenant people of God, the people of God in, a, in an ethnic formation as it was for, for, for centuries in the work of God on earth. There were Gentiles that proselytized into Israel. Yes, Israel was more like a commonwealth in that respect. But the ethnic old people of God being Jewish, if they could be rejected by God, if that was possible, Paul says, for sake of argument, if their tendencies to disobedience, which are biblical record, if their tendencies to disobedience was forfeiture of God's mercy to them, then what's to, present, uh, what's to prevent the same thing from happening to us? It's a fair question. It's a question that the first eight chapters in Romans raises when you then get to chapter 9 and you pose the question, yeah, but what about, what about Israel? They had all this good stuff going with God. What happened to them? Now, Paul says throughout Romans that... Uh, uh, it, it's not that way. There, there is no such thing as, as, as forfeiting the mercy of God. Mercy doesn't work like that. If it did, it wouldn't be mercy. He says that all through Romans. And here in chapter 9, he really takes pains. I mean, literally in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. The pains he takes to communicate that the specific people group the gospel began with and in, they in their specific place and specific time, that the gospel spread beyond them to us does not mean God is done with them. It was always in the intention of God to take the gospel beyond the people it began with. God has a future for ethnic Jewish people, that their past performance under the old covenant and current unbelief in Jesus does not negate. Again, we're going to see this unfold all through these three chapters, but chapter 11, verse 25, Paul says there, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles have come in. The gospel coming to us as everyone else, we are not Jewish, most of us in the room, we're Gentiles. The gospel coming to us does not mean God is finished with the people whose very DNA is in the gospel we believe. And the reason why not is simply put, but profoundly understood, the mercies of God. The mercies of God just don't work like that. Israel is exhibit A for why the doctrine of mercy matters. A doctrine that we prize and that they prize too. To look back at Israel as we have them in Scripture is to see a people incredibly graced by God, but incredibly obstinate. And so what happened? The people back there in our Old Testament and in our New Testament, 
as well as our neighbors today who are Jewish, the blood descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob to whom God made set promises. The descendants have been, the history is here, the descendants have been unbelieving, stubborn in unbelief, unfaithful. Generations of Israel disobedient to God, unfaithful to Him. But have we done all that better? I remember when Willow Creek Church in Chicago published its reveal study a few years ago. That study that they uh, put out out there on themselves, that study said that uh, the seeker model, the attractional model of church that they in large measure pioneered was significantly flawed in actually making disciples. They admitted this themselves. They were the progenitors of the seeker movement. Uh, I appreciated their honesty. I respected their contrition. Obviously, Willow Creek has been, uh, even subsequently since then, through a lot uh, with uh, Bill Hybel's troubles. And, and out of this, I hope a, a church will come that uh, is, is characterized, as, as all churches should be, by the things that belong to salvation, as, as the writer of the Hebrews puts it. See, a lot of people in traditional churches like ours, when the Reveal study came out, we said, oh, yeah, see, see, that we knew this all along, the seeker model, it's not going to work, as if we were doing better at reaching our neighbors than those who adopted the seeker model. I don't think so. It's important for us as Gentiles to square not with the memory of Israel, but with the mercy of God to Jewish people ongoing, Because our security in Christ is tied to this whether we realize it or not. God has not left Jewish people behind him as a bad memory. And this should matter to us because I love the line from Frederick Buechner, we are just like Israel, only more so. Israel was born on third base with God. Look at it, verses 4 and 5. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Amen just means it's true. It's a punctuation. It's emphasis. Listen to how God speaks to Israel from Deuteronomy 7. I'll just read this to you. And it's interesting, what I'm about to read to you is in a context where God has just ordered up the slaughter of the people groups that inhabit the land that God promised to Abraham's descendants through Isaac and Jacob that they're moving into. The killing of Gentiles. This is what he says to Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it's not because you're more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Pharaoh makes an appearance in our passage here in Romans 9, doesn't he? We'll get to him. But these chapters, Romans 9 through 11, they're here in our Bible to keep us mindful that God will get to Israel again as he got to them in the beginning. And this is because of his mercies. I don't know how all this is going to play out. But we look back at Israel as we have them in Scripture, and we see a people incredibly graced by God, yet largely unbelieving 
such that Paul will say of them, again over in chapter 11, this is verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. It pains him to write that. But, continuing in the same verse, chapter 11, verse 28, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The reason it's important for us to square with God, not leaving Jewish people behind Him is a bad memory. Why three chapters of New Testament text is given to this. In this book that a lot of people uh, think of as sort of the Magna Carta of the New Testament, the book of Romans. The reason it's important for us to, to square with this, why, why Israel um, re- remains uh, in, in the purposes of God, uh, why we do not substitute in their place as a, as a new Israel. I don't, I don't believe we are. The reason this is important is because if God hasn't rejected the Jewish people outright for their stubbornness and disobedience and unfaithfulness, despite all that he did for them in the past, neither will he reject us when the same stuff as their disobedience and unfaithfulness and obstinacy and stubbornness shows up in us as well, this side of the cross. They have, as it were, been shelved for a time for God to do a work in and for us, but they haven't been thrown out. There was no expiration date stamped on the purposes of God for His original Old Covenant ethnically comprised people. And so Israel is a historic entity. It's exhibit A for why the doctrine of mercy matters, not just for their own sake, but also because of how they parallel to us in that Anyone God redeems, anyone God takes to himself from any people group, we have our own hardness of heart issues with God ongoing. This will be addressed more fully in chapter 11. But we dare not think ourselves, Gentiles, better chosen people than the Jewish chosen people who preceded us, to whom belonged, as we read it there in chapter 9, verse 4, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises... And through whom came Jesus, verse 5, who is God over all, blessed forever. We shouldn't think of ourselves as Israel's replacements in the economy of God. If anyone is the true Israel, it's Jesus himself. Remember John chapter 15, where we were before Christmas? John chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And we read that and we think, well, you know, he's using a, you know, this imagery from Uh, from the vineyard, but I am the true vine would be like me saying, I'm the American eagle. If I said that, I would be saying, uh, I am America. And Jesus saying, I'm the true vine, the vine was the symbol of Israel. And so when he says, I'm the true vine, he is saying, I am the true Israel. I am everything that Israel was supposed to be. I am going to do everything that Israel was supposed to do. That's what he's saying. Israel never proved too hard for God to work with, and so he moved on to us as if we're easier, more obedient, better at godliness. I don't think so. Israel's failures did not constitute an emergency for God to come up with a plan B. Israel, in some respects, remains, and I'm not talking about the state of Israel. I'm talking about Israel as an entity with a history and, yes, a state and, and all of it, but a people who came through Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob. As it were, Israel is the star, and the Gentiles are the understudies in this story as it plays out. 
God knew Israel would fail. And actually their failure, as he'll teach, Paul will teach us in these three chapters, their failure opens the door to us to come in on the grace of God. We were always part of the design intent of God to redeem a people for himself. But Paul wants us to understand the DNA of God's salvation is Jewish. Now, there's a lot I'm not saying this morning, and I'll unpack as we go. Questions of does this commit us, you know, to support everything the Jewish state does today, the government of Israel? Uh, how are we to understand this question and that question? And, and uh, are the left behind books correct, you know, and et cetera and so on. I'm not getting into all of that today. I can't. I'm just, just beginning to, to put this before you. And I don't want us to miss the main point. And the main point, the central issue in these chapters is God's promises, His faithfulness to everyone He's made promises to. There are not two peoples of God. There's one people of God, Jew and Gentile both. The central issue, I say again in these chapters, is God's faithfulness to all the promises He makes, which means ethnic Jews are not disinherited for their unbelief of historic proportions because there are promises still outstanding to them. They have to come to God through Jesus. Please hear that. Same as anyone. There's no special dispensation for, for, for ethnic Jewish people. All have to come to God through Jesus Christ. But God can open anyone's eyes. And He's doing that and will continue to do that. He will continue to enlarge his believing remnant in the world, which presently includes Jews, and as time goes on, Scripture indicates will include more Jewish people. And that's God's doing, just as the Old Testament prophets anticipated. Paul says so. I'll give you a flavor of this. Chapter 10, verse 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Guess who the foolish nation is? We, us. Chapter 11, verse 11. I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And then verse 25, which I read earlier and read again. Chapter 11. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you, you Gentiles, to understand this mystery Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is always the outworking of the purposes of God. I remember a story from Tom Nelson. He told this years ago in one of his sermons. It's just kind of re remained with me. Tom Nelson preached here uh, at different times. He's from Denton Bible Church in, in Denton, Texas, just north of Dallas. And he, he shared a story about once he was at a gas pump and in the bay across from him was a woman filling her car with gas and they somehow engaged in conversation and he mentioned that he was a pastor and she said to that, well, I'm Jewish. And as the conversation went... He said he wanted her to, to think about how it was, how it came to be that when his ancestors, as, a, as an Anglo male, when his ancestors were running around the wilds of Europe naked and illiterate, her ancestors were handling the words of God. And then he said to her, how is it that I got your Messiah and you got Denton? That's kind of Tom Nelson's way. 
how did I get your Messiah and you got Denton? It's a good thought question. The central issue in these chapters is God's faithfulness to all the promises he's made to whomever he's made them. What God has set out to do is redeem a people for himself. He's never promised he would save every ethnic Jew. That's Paul's argument in verses 6 through 8 here, ongoing down to verse 18, this large chunk of text. His argument is that it has and hasn't been about bloodline. It is about bloodline where it concerns Jesus. Jesus came as a Jew to Jews, but many of them remained in unbelief and lived up to the name of Israel. Israel means he struggles with God. But in them we see our own unbelief. We see our own hardness of heart issues in them, our own struggling with God for control of our lives. In their believing lies, we see ourselves reflected back. We too believe lies. We're just like Israel, only more so. We didn't get out on God's grace because we were smarter, because we were nobler, because we were better than Jews were at following God. We got in because God extended his mercy to us who were in the dark. He shined the same light he'd been shining in Israel. He shined to us and, and caused us to see. And that mercy that he extended to us, that mercy is going to boomerang somehow, someway, as time plays out in God's economy. Somehow, someway, that mercy boomerangs back around to the original old covenant people again in God's timing so that when his kingdom comes, we all experience faithfulness to his every promise. As verse 16 puts it here in chapter 9, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Mercy is how God preserves a people for himself. I like the little story Anne Lamott tells in her latest book, Almost Everything, Notes on Hope. She says once when she was struggling in recovery, Anne's been sober many years, but she was struggling and she got really down on herself. It, it was related to her son. She considered herself the worst mom in existence. She felt that she had really uh, wounded and, and failed her son. And, and she was unburdening this to her sponsor whom she called Horrible Bonnie. <laughs> but what Horrible Bonnie said to Anne Lamott, she's never forgotten. Horrible Bonnie was a believer. And she told her that she, Anne Lamott, at her most toxic and unlovely, was still pre-approved. That's the word she used. Horrible Bonnie said, here is the secret, dearest. You are pre-approved. Pre and Anne Lamott said when she heard that, all she could do was keep asking, really? <laughs> really? Really? Why does God want to have anything to do with the likes of us? Because he's more merciful than we know. He pre-approved you and me when he pre-approved Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. It's never depended on the exertion of the will and the efforts to be good. It's always depended on his mercy. And when we get this straight, it's a beautiful truth that is communicated to us in what many find to be an ugly text. It's a lot of people don't like this text. Verse 13 as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God, how could you? What did Esau ever really do to you? How come he couldn't be pre-approved? 
I mean, I get that you wanted to choose Jacob, but why did you have to leave Esau out? I, I get God's rejection of Pharaoh down in verses 17 and 18, a slaver, an oppressive tyrant, the Hitler of his day. Hard to feel empathy for the megalomaniacal, but Esau? I mean, don't you feel for Esau when he's there with his father Isaac, realizing Jacob has come in and deceived their father into giving to Jacob what was rightfully Esau's by birth as the firstborn? And Esau cries out to Isaac. He's, he's there begging his father with, with tears down that man's man's face. Bless me, me too, O my father. When Rebekah had conceived, verse 10, children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Hated? Really? What's going on? Well, it's emotion is not what's going on. Choice, ch choice and choosing is what's going on. God's purpose of election, verse 11, which many struggle with. I understand. Particularly those who are, style themselves more self-made. This passage to a lot of people kind of feels like watching the sausage made. I'd rather not know that God makes choices, you know, and, and some people get bypassed. Hate conveys emotion to us. This passionate againstness. Whereas love, in verse 13, this passionate for you. But when you look at Esau's life from there, Esau was in fact greatly blessed. Uh, his father Isaac said that he would be blessed. And he was. It's just that Esau would not be the one through whom the Messiah would come. That's the blessing that Esau would miss. His name associated to the Messiah of God throughout all eternity. That's the point. The Messiah would come through Jacob. In fact, that wasn't a picnic for Jacob. Esau was spared a lot of the disappointments and humiliations and dramas that Jacob suffered as a result of God upending the, the culture of everything going to the firstborn in this particular family, and it goes to the, the secondborn. But God upends that in, in order to magnify His grace and mercy to Jacob, whom we read in the story of Genesis, not just as the secondborn, but as a guy who seems a lot less deserving of blessing than Esau. Most of you guys in this church are hunters, right? You got me into it. Esau was a hunter. Most of you guys like SEC football. Thank God for that. We wouldn't have anything to talk about, most guys, if we could not resort to football discussion. Works every time. Esau would have enjoyed going to games with you. Esau was the, the guy that when he realized his, uh, his parents didn't like his, his wife, he went and got one that he thought they would like. With God, it's not about our deservings. It's about His purposes. It's about His prerogatives. Now, if He's trustworthy and good, that's okay. If He's arbitrary and He's just doing things, moving the chess pieces around, being the great puppet master, then okay, we have problems with that. But, but the priorities of God as they work out in grace and mercy, we can be okay with a God like this. 
He has mercy on whomever he wills. Verse 18, he hardens whomever he wills. Does this mean he makes some unbelieving? No. God's never made anyone unbelieving. In fact, if you look back, that verse 18 is in the context of Pharaoh there, verses 17 and 18. If you look back on the Exodus narrative describing uh, Pharaoh's refusals to let the people of Israel go, uh, Pharaoh refer, re, preferring to have this uh, you-know-what contest with God. <laughs> almost said it. The text in Exodus says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Uh, God hardening his heart was leaving him in his sin by withholding mercy from him. God didn't choose Esau and he didn't save Pharaoh, but he made neither sin. He deemed Esau would be the object of his rejection, that Pharaoh would be the object of his wrath, that Jacob and Moses would be the objects of his grace and mercy. If you struggle with election as a doctrine, nothing I'm saying is going to be very emotionally satisfying to you. And Paul acknowledges as much as the chapter goes on. We'll see this next week. We ask questions of God that he stops when it comes to his elective purposes. And we, Lord, this is not very emotionally satisfying. But we are being told here the truth about how God keeps his promises, every one of which is set in his purposes, his decrees, his sovereign will, his sovereign grace. But if God were not merciful, this truth would be devastating. It would be. It would crush us. It's a good thing he's more merciful than we know. In the gospel, we get an inversion as well as an intervention. The inversion is seen in the Jacob and Esau story. God, God upends what we expect. The blessing should come to the older. God gives it to the younger. The gospel inverts our, our sense of, you know, if, if I put in the effort, if I put in the work to be good and right, then God ought to give me something in return, namely his love and his grace. And it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. The gospel inverts if, if I feel like I've got this good place in line and, and God sends me to the back. You know, the first will be last and the last first. What's all that about? Inversion. God says we've already spent our best efforts and, and, and submitted our will to sin. And if he doesn't pay for that, we remain lost. And so what happens is the only begotten son, begotten meaning there was never a time where he was not in being God, the highest person takes the lowest place, though everything belongs to him, in order to lift us to where he is. That's grace. Jacob and Esau are clues. They're hints from of old for how God works his purposes out. That's the inversion. The intervention is that he cuts in on our hardening our hearts toward him. Moses and Pharaoh are clues in this particular case, hence from old of what this looks like ongoing. Every hard-hearted thought, every hard-hearted word, every hard-hearted deed we've displayed, God has seen and will not hold against us. Because we have hard-hearted issues still. But he cuts in on us to spare us deserved condemnation, to spare us rejection, to spare shelving us, as it were, for generations. For now, generations of Jewish people have not gotten in on what you and I have gotten in on by grace. But for centuries before, our ancestors didn't get in on it. Ultimately, I have to leave that to God. But don't we know full well that we too have our hard-hearted issues with God? Israel did, we do too. 
just like Israel, only more so. And what does God do with us? Remains faithful to His promises of old. Remains a God who is working out His purposes through mercies, new mercies every morning. He pre-approves, and that's the best thing any of us have going for ourselves. It's a big chunk of text that we've got before us this morning. We've hardly scratched it. Some questions we'll come back to as we go through these chapters. But for all the detailed questions raised in these chapters and the arguments people have theologically, I, want, I don't want you to miss the main point. Mercy is how God preserves a people for himself. And his mercies never tap out. He is generous in mercy. Mercy is how we get to experience the faithfulness of God. Mercy is woven through every strand of DNA in the gospel. Mercy is our pre-approval with God. Really? 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 We're just like Israel, only more so. But the mercy of God is inexhaustible. God does not cut us off. He won't cut us down. And it's at this table we anticipate His renewing all things, this time of communion that we move into. Because of His mercy, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. What does that mean? That means we proclaim that God is merciful. Our sin is covered, and as a result, we'll see our Savior's face in welcome, not His back turned to us in rejection of us, though that is what we deserve. The point of communion is mercy. We haven't gotten what we deserve. We've gotten undeserved, unmerited grace. And as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the means of grace, the Lord's death, until He comes, which will be His coming, a great mercy to us and to all who remain, whether they know it or not, in his redemptive view. Let's pray. Father, for these truths, we thank you. For your mercies, we are more grateful, hopefully every day. And if we're not, that you would make us so. That with each passing year, our appreciation of what you have fixed for us that it would, would grow. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.